0: First reading is John's Gospel, chapter 3, Uh, in your pure Bible it will be found on page 750, 750, John's Gospel, chapter 3, and I'll start reading from verse 1, and we thank the Lord for His open word, so let us listen carefully, so if you're able to respond obediently and be able to be, and be transformed, stand unashamed at His glorious coming. Chapter 3 verse 1 Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone, born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things?
1: the second reading is taken from the first letter of John um, it is to be found on the church bibles on page eight sixty nine and it's from the second chapter from verse twenty eight through the third chapter and to the bottom of verse, to the end of verse ten and now dear children continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us Is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, Do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Because God's seed remains in him, he cannot go on sinning, because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are, and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Amen.
2: Um, Mariano, thank you very much indeed. Well, let's have our Bibles open at 1 John, and uh, I'm going to ask the Lord to help us understand his word. Heavenly Father, today we, we celebrate your faithfulness to us over these past three years. Uh, and we know that everything that has happened among us has happened according to your sovereign will has happened by your spirit through your word but though we are not what we once were we are not yet what you would have us be and so we ask that once again you would come and speak to us this morning Will you blow away the the cobwebs of our complacency and sin and thrill us with your plans and purposes for us, through Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his precious name. Amen. Well, his conversation was peppered with Christian vocabulary. Um, He often talked about the importance of having God's blessing in your life, He said that the Christian confessions would be the central pillar of his new government. Uh, His manner was that of a man whom God had raised up for a very special responsibility. In his briefings to the newspapers, he frequently made use of religious language. He even showed people his tattered Bible and said that it gave him all the strength he needed for his God-given task. Thousands of people in the church welcomed him as a man sent from God. His name? His name was Adolf Hitler. Uh, Outwardly, he claimed to be a religious man. Uh, Inwardly, he was something altogether different. Most people, of course, only woke up to the reality when it was already far too late. Now, Hitler was obviously an unusual case, uh, but of course, religious hypocrisy is not unusual at all. It's a deadly and highly contagious disease. And so for that reason, uh, our text for this morning is chapter 3, verse 10, which I'm going to read for us again. John says this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God nor is anyone who does not love his brother now in our series I think we're discovering aren't we that the Apostle John was quite a character um We know him, of course, as the Apostle of Love. But uh, in case that title conjures up the image of a a gentle, rather cuddly grandfather figure, uh, this passage tells us we need to think again. John was certainly no pushover. When he wrote this letter, he was probably in his early 80s, an age when I think most of us are looking to take things a bit slower and uh, have a quieter life. But not John. He loves his fellow Christians, and he feels a tremendous burden for their spiritual welfare. He wants them to know that they're living at a unique time in history. He calls it the last hour. Uh, Last week we saw that for all Christians, the last hour is a time of terrific joy, but also a time of great spiritual danger. And one of these dangers is false ideas about Christianity finding their way into the church. John says that in the last hour there are going to be people in the churches who claim to be children of God, when in reality they're children of the devil. And in order to stay spiritually healthy, we need to know the difference. Now, don't misunderstand me. Uh, John isn't changing his theme or his purpose. Uh, He still wants to build confidence and assurance into every Christian. But he does want to build on a secure foundation. And when John was writing, there were lots of people trying to lead Christians astray, trying to deceive them with a false spirituality. Now the problem was that on the surface this uh, religion looked a bit like Christianity. Uh, these people could use Christian jargon. They even said they believed some of the apostles' teaching. But their version of Christianity was actually counterfeit. It was a fake. And John doesn't want anybody to be led astray by fake Christianity. And that's why this morning our passage begins a new section in the letter. Um, So far, you know that John has given us three tests that we can use on ourselves to prove to our consciences that we are real Christians. But now, in this new section, he revisits each of these areas in turn and he shows us the opposite. He shows us what false Christianity looks like in each case. Now I want to stress again that John isn't here launching a witch hunt. We must not use this teaching uh, in order to compile a list of children of the devil in order to put it on Facebook. No, John's purpose is to encourage you and me to live authentic Christian lives. He wants us to walk in the light and not get pulled back into the darkness. And this morning, the area he starts with is obedience. He doesn't want any of us to have false ideas about the importance and the practice of obedience. And so in our text this morning, what he does is he gives us three motivations to encourage us to live obedient, holy lives. And he starts by reminding us that a Christian is someone who's been brought into a relationship of love. A relationship of love. Come with me to chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. Now, my dear friends, this is very, very important but I want to say that I think this is very little understood today. Yes, the Christian knows that he's somebody who has to obey or is called to obey God's commands uh, and in this passage John describes our obedience as doing what is right he uses that phrase in a couple of places but for the real Christian this can never 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 be cold legalism because the Father has lavished his love upon us he's brought us into his family so not only are we called the children of God No, John says we actually are the children of God. And the Father has done this for us because he loves us. And John wants us, I think, to pause on this and think how radically different the Father's love is from any other kind of love that you and I have ever experienced. He expects it to take our breath away And I say that because the language of verse 1 is extremely unusual. The sense of it is, what country is this love from? It's completely foreign to all human expressions of love. Uh, In Matthew chapter 8, when uh, Jesus stills the storm... The disciples use the same word. They're so blown away by the authority and power of Jesus that they say, what kind of man is this? And a literal translation of that would be, what country is he from? Jesus is in a totally different category from anything we've ever come across before. And it's the same with the Father's love now you see friends it means that the worst mistake that I could ever make is to think that there's nothing surprising about the fact that God loves me if I think that I'm just the sort of person that God frankly should be expected to love well then I'm going against absolutely everything the Bible teaches because The Bible's message is that by nature all of us are objects of wrath. All we deserve is God's anger. And so every Christian ought to feel that it is the most astonishing and breathtaking thing that God should love us rather than condemn us. And yet, God has shown his love by by adopting us as his children so we can call him Father. But you know, what is so striking about this is that it is totally different from any other kind of human adoption process. This isn't simply a, a legal transaction God hasn't called in the lawyers to just sign the adoption papers. No, it's far, far more wonderful than that. Because in this passage, when John uh, wants to talk about what it means to be a Christian, he says that a Christian is someone who has been born of God. That's the language that he uses. Uh, He uses it once in chapter 2, verse 29, and again twice in chapter 3, verse 9. Now that phrase, born of God, is one that John uses a total of ten times in the letter, but what does it actually mean? Well, in his letter, uh, John unfortunately doesn't tell us. He describes the behaviour of those who are born of God, but he doesn't tell us how it happens or why it matters. Now, if we want to know that, we have to go to the beginning of his Gospel. So keep a finger in one, John, and turn with me, will you please, to the first chapter of John's Gospel. John chapter 1, verse 10, on page 748. John 1, verse 10, page 748 and these opening verses the prologue of John's gospel are really an executive summary of everything that he says in the rest of the book verse 10 Jesus was in the world and though the world was made through him the world did not recognise him he came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him yet to all who received him to all who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. He's telling us, you see, that when a person becomes a Christian, it's all God's initiative. And the change that follows is so utterly radical that John describes it as a new birth. Now why does he say it that way? Well, one of the commentators summarises it very nicely and I've put it for you on the back of the question sheet you might like to follow with me. He says this, God has given human birth as an illustration of what the new birth means. In human birth, there is first a conception in which the seed of the father unites with the egg of a mother to begin a new life. There is a period of gestation in which that which was begun in such a quiet and small way begins to grow and take form. At last there is the actual birth. In birth the first cries of the child are heard and those who stand by rejoice in a new human being. In the same way, men and women become God's children when God the Father of his own will takes the seed of his word and plants it within the heart causing it to unite with the ovum of saving faith which together begins to grow. At this stage of God's work bystanders cannot tell whether spiritual life is present or not but in time the life within grows and the actual birth takes place as those standing by hear the public confession of Christ by the newborn they know of the new life and rejoice in it with the Father that's very brilliant isn't it but it means my friend I have to ask you has this happened to you are you born of God I'm asking you see because in John chapter 3 and the passage that uh, Mariano read for us Jesus is having a conversation with a man called Nicodemus and that conversation is a striking illustration of the fact that it's possible to be extremely religious and yet never to have experienced the most fundamental thing about being a Christian Nicodemus is a religious expert Jesus thought of him as being the most distinguished theologian in the country but when Jesus said to him unless you are born again you will never see the kingdom of God well Nicodemus hadn't the slightest idea what he was talking about so what about you? perhaps you're not sure But John says, actually, you can know by testing yourself. So come back with me, will you, to 1 John, and let's look together at chapter 2, verse 29. Verse 29 of chapter 2. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. What's he saying? He's saying that if it is God's nature to be righteous, and if you are his child, well, then his character will start to show through in you. There will be a change of behavior, there will be an impulse in you to do what is right that wasn't actually there before the Father's righteous character will be starting to show through in your life. And the question is, well, can you say that? Can you say that? Of course, it's actually only the start of the process. Um, The best is still to come because if you notice in chapter 3, verse 2, he tells us that when Jesus returns, we shall become like him on that great day we will actually reflect his perfect character perfectly that's actually an amazing thought isn't it and why will this happen well there's only one reason it's because the father loves us he's already given us new birth he calls us his children, and the Father never abandons his children. Never. How great the love the Father has lavished upon us. But secondly, John says that being in a relationship of love with the Father brings with it a responsibility of trust and that's our second point this morning a responsibility of trust now imagine for a moment um, a group of teenagers having a party at a friend's house Um, it's late in the evening and uh, as the party comes to a close someone says well why don't we go on to this particular nightclub And one of the girls says to her boyfriend Well actually um, I'd rather you took me home My parents don't actually approve of that place And one of her friends says sarcastically Oh, are you afraid your father's going to hurt you? And the girl says No, I'm not afraid my father will hurt me No, I'm actually afraid that I might hurt him Now that's the principle here John has told us what we are. We are children of God. He's also told us what we will be. When Jesus returns, we will be like him. And because of these amazing privileges, John tells us what we should be now. How we should be living today in order to please rather than to grieve our Heavenly Father. So come with me to verse 3. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You see, as God's children, we have a responsibility to keep our lives clean. Our Heavenly Father is trusting us not to spoil or tarnish the reputation of the family name. The implication, I think, is that if we're not actually purifying ourselves and we have no desire to do so, well, that's a sign that we may never have had this wonderful hope in the first place. Like Nicodemus, we might have been thinking that our relationship with God was in terrific shape when the truth is, It never actually started. Now, please will you notice that this isn't a responsibility the Father gives to just a handful of super-keen Christians. It's for every Christian. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself. So there are no exceptions. And the language tells us, doesn't it, that this is a continuous process. It's in the present tense. That means it's meant to be happening now. The Christian purifies himself now. There are no days off. And by the same, same token, of course, nobody can ever say that they've arrived, that they've done all the purifying that they ever need to do and now they've moved on to something more interesting. Can't say that. So how are we to fulfil this responsibility? Well, John uh, points us to the Lord Jesus, doesn't he? We are to purify ourselves as he is pure. So Jesus is our example. Uh, Not because he purified himself. Uh, Obviously Jesus never needed to do that. Uh, He is perfectly pure and he always has been. But the point that John is making Is that Jesus demonstrated his perfect purity in the same anti God, hostile world in which you and I are to purify ourselves? That's the point. Which means, of course, it's not going to be easy. The world is going to be screaming at us not to do this. Largely, of course, because it makes them feel so very uncomfortable. But when it does, when the world mocks us and persecutes us, we are to remember that Jesus set himself to obey the Father's will, even though he knew that it would mean suffering and ultimately, of course, death on the cross. And so we need to remember that it it was Jesus' purity demonstrated in perfect obedience that secured our place in heaven. And if heaven is our destination, then you and I need to be travelling on the road that leads there. First and foremost, that means being absolutely ruthless with sin. Why do I say that? Look at verse 5. But you know, says John, that Christ appeared so that he might take away our sins. So Jesus came to remove our sins. That was the focal point of his mission. And so you see, if you and I become complacent about sin, what we're actually doing is despising what Jesus did for us on the cross. Kent Hughes is an American scholar who's written uh, several marvellous books on the disciplines of holiness for the Christian. Uh, He says that in our pursuit of purity there are certain questions that you and I would be wise to ask ourselves at regular intervals. I'll briefly mention four of them. Question one. Am I being desensitised by the world around me? Do the things that once shocked me now make little or no impact? Question two. What am I reading? Are there books and magazines on my shelves and maybe files on my computer that I don't want anyone else to see? Question three. What do I watch on television? How many hours do I spend watching television? In the last week how many adulteries did I see? How many murders did I watch? And question four, most important of all how many chapters of the Bible did I read last week? That actually is the key test Why do I say that? Well, J.C. Ryle, the former Bishop of Liverpool, puts it this way. He says, the Bible, applied to the heart by the Holy Spirit, is the chief means by which men are established in the faith and built up after their conversion. It is able to cleanse them, to sanctify them, to instruct them in righteousness, and to furnish them thoroughly for all good works, Now that's absolutely right, because only the Holy Spirit can make us holy. But He does it as we read and study the Bible. So, no Bible reading, no purity. It's actually as simple as that. And in case we're not uh, yet fully convinced that our purity matters, thirdly, John reminds us that our behaviour is a reflection of reality. A reflection of reality. I don't know whether you agree with me but I think there's nothing that the media today enjoys more than a paternity suit. Uh, The pattern is pretty much always the same. Uh, There's the supermodel who claims that um, a male celebrity is the father of her child Um, he of course denies it because he's married and so she takes him to court and the court makes its decision on the basis of a genetic test and it's the test that proves the reality now in the Christian life there isn't actually a genetic test but there is a paternity test and you'll find it in verses 8 to 10. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Can you see that paternity to God or paternity to the devil is proved either by observable righteousness or by observable sin. The test proves the reality. But of course there is a difficulty here, isn't there? What does John mean when he says no one who is born of God will continue to sin? It's a problem, of course, because back in chapter 1, John said to his Christian readers, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So at first sight, it appears as if John is contradicting himself. The traditional solution to the problem has been to say that in chapter 1, John is saying that the Christian does still sin occasionally, from time to time. But in chapter 3, he's saying that he doesn't sin habitually as a matter of course. Now, while that of course is immensely attractive and undoubtedly true, it's actually putting words into the text that John didn't actually write. In verse 9, the NIV has inserted the word continue. John didn't actually write that. What he actually wrote was no one who is born of God sins. That's a problem, isn't it? Because experience tells us that all of us do. But John knows that, of course. So what's he actually saying? Well, the clue that unlocks the the true meaning is back in verse 4. And uh, because this is far and away the most important thing that I'm going to say to you this morning, I want you to just look at your neighbour and just check they haven't nodded off. They're fully alert. Good. Verse 4, John says, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Now that word lawlessness is a very particular and rather unusual word. It's not talking about individual sins. Now, wherever this word appears in the New Testament, it's always describing a high-handed rejection of God's authority. So think for a moment, will you, of the problems that John's readers had been dealing with. Uh, You remember that troublemakers had left the churches. Uh, These people were lawless in the sense that they had rejected the authority of God's apostles over their lives. They were decent people, apparently, but they rejected God's authority through his apostles. In particular, they rejected the apostles' teaching on sin. Now, what happens when people reject the word of God given by the apostles? Well, you see, they have to establish their own authorities instead, don't they? People have to have a standard to live by. And once they reject God's authority, what invariably happens is they set a standard for their own lives that they know they can achieve. In John's day, this was the mark of the Pharisee. It's the person in the parable of Jesus who says, well, (laughs) I fast twice a week, therefore I'm not a sinner. I've achieved my own standard. So you see, what John is actually talking about here is self-righteousness. Today, uh, we would say that this is middle-class decency that rejects, the gospel message of a Bible teaching church and goes looking for something less intrusive that is lawlessness in fact to give it its proper New Testament term it's apostasy so John's point you see in verse 9 is that if you are born of God then God has actually planted his seed in you. He's given you a new nature. And the proof of that new nature is that you willingly accept God's authority. Now that doesn't of course mean that you never sin. Of course you do. We all do. I do, you do. We all still sin occasionally. But your heart attitude is fundamentally one of full submission to Christ as Saviour and as Lord. So lawlessness is one sin that the real Christian cannot actually commit. One of the reformers puts it like this. He says, a dog lives a dog's life. A fish lives a fish's life a bird lives a bird's life a Christian lives the life of Christ so you see if we actually understand what John is saying correctly it's a very comforting message because John's John's argument is not like that um, Nike advert that used to be around a couple of years ago do you remember the one that used to say just do it no, no, no. John isn't saying that. His argument is be what you are. God has made you into a different person. So be different. Now, the Apostle Paul says the same thing, slightly differently, but very beautifully, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. And with this, I close. If you want to put your nose on it, I think it's on page 823. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 page 823 now what's happening here of course is in the first instance Paul is describing himself but he's also describing the reality of everyone who is truly born of God verse 20 Paul says I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you for bringing us into your family and owning us as your dearly loved children. Open our eyes to see just how wonderful this privilege is and help us to uphold the honour of the family name in lives of purity and love. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.